The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the privilege of meeting here and then for putting into words these precious truths. That because you are God and we are yours, it is well with us. Come what may. Thank you. And I pray now as we consider your word, Lord, that you would speak that into us again in different ways, perhaps to renew or refresh our minds, perhaps to teach us something different, but to encourage us. We live in a world that is full of trial and tribulation. You told us that, and it is necessary that we pass through it on the way to glory. And so help us to to reckon that as true, to understand it, And help us to see you and to also equally rest assured that it is well with us that you rescue us from every evil deed and carry us safely home. This is true. Bless your name. Help us to see it, grasp it, and love you for it. Make your word clear. Father, will you commission your spirit of God, your your spirit now to move through this room upon us here to draw our attention to your word and to you, to teach us, mature us, and give us rest. Thank you, Lord. We trust this all to you and say, you are good. You are good. You are good. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Last week we looked at the beginning of 2 Timothy chapter 3. And what we found there was an alert to what might be an otherwise unexpected or maybe even undetected trouble. See, Christ has come. He's reigning over his kingdom. He's seated in heaven right now, reigning. That's true. And yet, also, within and all around his kingdom, there is a threat. There are these wolves camouflaged in sheep clothes. And they are in and among the people of God so as to prey upon them and to draw them away from God, to tear apart the flock. And Paul wants to alert us to them and to encourage us to look very closely for them because they won't look like that at the start. Be alert, look closely. And he warns us there and avoids and tells us to avoid joining with them. And there's lots of warning there. That was last week. But this week, the focus turns from the wolves to Timothy himself, and as that focus turns, it does so because of the the threat, the nature of the threat he's going to look at this week. If you talk about wolves in sheep clothing, obviously the the, the paradigm there is one of hiddenness, of secretness. They're creeping in, it says. They're kind of sneaking in the back door, undetected. That's, that's, That's one threat, but... There's another one that Timothy is vulnerable to. He's not vulnerable to 
to that threat because he's alert. He knows. He sees them. But there's another threat that he and we face that is quite different. Open persecution. Not a threat to us because we don't see it coming, but a threat to us because we do see it coming. And we know it hurts. That's what he's going to address today for Timothy and for Christians everywhere at the end of 2 Timothy chapter 3. If you're a Christian in this world, probably even if you're just considering becoming a Christian in this world, and that's known, certainly a Christian in this world, you're going to face all kinds of uncomfortable challenges and hardship that are just common to people in the world. But additionally, we'll face this threat of persecution challenge and temptation that wants to draw us away from the path. But that would have terrible consequences for us and for the church and for the glory of God in the world and for all those who are watching and trying to discern who is Jesus and what's true about him. So we need to be alerted to this threat. And God, through Paul, gives us warning and gives us help to face it. That's what our passage is about today. So let me read it. I'm going to read the second half of chapter 3, beginning verse 10, all the way to the end. But I'm not going to say much about 16 and 17. I'm going to leave that for next week. So this is 2 Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse 10. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at, I, at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured. Yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. That, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. 2 Timothy 3. I'm going to make two observations from the passage, and here's the first. The Christian life is one of principled godliness and persecution. <clears throat> Both. The Christian life is one of principled godliness and persecution. Verse 10, Paul turns to Timothy and says, but as for you, and in fact for me, we are in a different place than those false teachers we were just considering. The Christian life is very different. And then what Paul gives us here, what follows in the first half of, of this long paragraph, is Paul recounting his life for Timothy, that Timothy knows and it says has followed meaning that he understands it and has followed along in that path as best he can. Of course, he can't repeat all the circumstances and all the particular happenings, but he's a follower of this. So he knows it, he's aware of it, and he's followed on in this life. This is Paul's path, 
and Timothy's path too. You have seen and followed in, and then we get a list, very different from the list we saw in the beginning of the chapter. Timothy knows and has drank deeply of Paul's teaching. Unlike the false teaching that turns aside from the truth, Paul taught in, in word and, and in deed the truth from God and conducted himself in a strategic manner. That's what my conduct means. He's not just talking about his daily life or his character. We'll come to that in a minute. What he means here is something we might call intentionality. My teaching and my, my intentionality, or a modern Christian phrase might be something like missional living. Which when joined to the next phrase, my aim in life, put all that together, and what, what he's getting at is, I, Paul, know that I was given a message. I was given the message of the gospel, and I was given an assignment to go be a spokesperson of that message. And so, that has meant something for how I've used my life. What I teach, and what I'm about, and what I'm after, and how I use my time, and where I go, the decisions that I make. I've, I've got a, a principled life here. Scriptural principles and then missional principles. I'm about something. This is not, Paul's life is not a haphazard, do what feels good in the moment sort of life. It's a mission centered on a body of information, news about what God has done in Christ that other people have to know. And so Paul makes it his aim to make it known. That's what he's about. That reality controls him. He's about that, and Timothy also knows his character displayed in, in the godliness that, that we've seen in this book and also in 1 Timothy, using some of these very same words here, that faith and patience and love and steadfastness this is not just the appearance of godliness, it's actual godliness. The Timothy is seen in Paul. As he's moved through his, his principled life, he's seen. This is what comes out when he's poked, when he's, when he's troubled, when he faces persecutions and sufferings, which we'll see in a minute. What comes out of him is not love of self, but love of others. What comes out of him is not pride and abuse of others, a manipulation of them to get his own agenda. No, no. In fact, what comes out of him is patience and steadfastness and a love for the ones he's around. This is true principled godliness. This is the heart of Paul's life and Timothy's life because it's the Christian life. Different for each of us, according to our circumstances and giftings. But this kind of principled godliness that recognizes there's a mission that means something for my life, and there's a character that I'm called to, that's the Christian life for all of us. We're not here. We are not here to live one or the other half of this. 
let alone neither half of it. We're not here to live on a mission. Who cares about my character? Or just a character, forget the mission. Both of these things together, the principled Christian life, I've got a a core message and an aim in life that I live in faith, love, and hope, patient with people, seeking their good in Christ. That's the Christian life. Comma. And here's the point Paul's really getting at. Comma. With persecution. See, he's not actually telling Timothy, I want you to replicate my conduct, my aim in life. I want you to love like I do. What he's putting in front of him here is, you know that about me, you know this about me, you follow this, you know this is the thing, you know. And he's moving towards verse 11 and 12, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra. Why does he mention those towns? Those towns are from early in Paul's ministry. They're from where Timothy's from. That's his homeland. That's where he met Paul. If you read the book of Acts, it seems that he actually met Paul in Lystra. When Paul came back to Lystra after getting stoned and left for dead there the first time, he came back. If you got stoned and left for dead at a town, how long would it be before you went back? He went back and he met Timothy there. What he's saying here is, you know that too, right? You know that's from the very beginning. You saw me. I probably still had the bruises. I was threatened to be killed in one place and driven out of another left for dead in another place, and then you signed up. That's where you signed up. That's what it's been about from the very beginning. We are not on a victory tour of the Mediterranean world. Triumphant, powerful. We go from place to place, driven out, stoned, threatened, beaten, imprisoned. Next, that's what you signed up for. That's my life. That's your life, verse 12. In fact, that's the Christian life. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. This is the point. My persecutions and sufferings, well, they're unique to me. You've never been to Antioch of Pisidia. But they're not unique. They're the Christian life. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, this is the fact. You will be persecuted. Jesus himself said that if they persecute me, which they did, remember they killed him. If they persecute me, they will persecute anybody who bears my name, which is us. Jesus said that. And then Paul says that from, the, from 
from step one of my journey with Jesus. He saved me on the road to persecuting Christians. He saved me on that road. He blinded me and he opened my eyes, word one, and let me show you how much you will suffer for my namesake. That was the beginning for me. Timothy, the beginning for you was you joined me in Lystra. I've told you that we must pass through many tribulations on the way to heaven. This, this is what it is for every one of us. This is not a command that we seek out. It just comes to us. This is not about super-Christians, the elite, missionaries maybe. All who desire to live a life like this. All who want to be Christians. We will be persecuted not because we attack the world. We renounce all attempts at coercion, uses of force or power. We maybe need to be a little more clear about that here in the United States. We need to be clear that we are not about power plays to get the Christian message to dominate. Sometimes we need to actually tell the world that. Sometimes we need to tell ourselves that. Yes, we live in a democracy. We've got the right to participate in the political process like everybody else. Yes. As long as we don't sin in doing that and coerce and work power plays and manipulate and bribe and support immorality and, and, and some sort of exchange for, if I get this thing, I'll, I'll go along with that. That's sin. No, 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 no. No. We need to tell ourselves that and tell the world that. We renounce all attempts at power plays and uses of force and coercion. We do indeed share this message deliberately, and we do indeed reason for it and attempt to persuade all people this is the way to real life. For sure. We offer it, we don't force it, we explain it, and we live it. But we don't require others to, and in fact know that they won't. And we will suffer for that. We will. Because the second half of verse 12 makes clear that evil in the world will always grow, it will never decline. Deception in and of the world will always grow and never decline because, remember, from the end of chapter 2, the prince of this world, Satan himself, has captured the world to do his will, and his will is to oppose God and God's people. From the very beginning, Genesis chapter 3, enmity, conflict has existed between those who want to live a godly life in Christ and those who do not. And that's the way it is. We will be persecuted. Most of the time, by the grace of God, that does not involve the physical harming of our bodies. It doesn't involve most time imprisonment or death. In many places of the world, at many times it has, but not most places and not most times. But persecution is nonetheless the order of the day. 
And if we think about that and look back at history, it should be just impossible for us to conceive of Christianity as some sort of a triumphalistic religion. We are still a people of the cross. That's who we are. That's who we are. And let me just be honest with you. I don't like that. I'm an American. I I think that probably we... Americans, we who are, generally speaking, a little bit better off than some other Americans, we have to wrestle with this and get our minds around it. I certainly do myself. I think we all do. Persecution of any sort so frightens us. Because here's what's going on in me, at least. I really want to be a Christian. And I really want the fundamentals of the American life, which past history has told me means that I have afforded to me influence, security, affluence, power, and respect. Comfort, ease, throwing else, whatever. That's what history has told me is, is my due. And I really want that. And I want to be a Christian. I mean, I really want to be a real Christian. Verse 12 says there's a conflict between those two things, period. There is. Not because, that, now, it can be because in some way we've been offensive or have not officially, have not done as, as what, good of a job of what we officially disavow and we've, we've done something wrong. Yeah, that can happen. But even if we don't, even when we are completely loving and gracious, we pursue peace, we are patient, even then there will still be a conflict between these two things because the world does not like how we smell. If you're a Christian, you're going to smell like Jesus. And in the eyes of people who do not belong to Jesus, he stinks. That's the truth. There's going to be a tension there. And and I so much want to hold these two things together. But what happens, what inevitably happens... This, this tension, I'm pulled this way, and my mouth is silenced, and I find myself a little more reticent to step in, to say something, to sacrifice or to give. In some way, gospel ministry gets turned down a little bit, and I give up something in the first half of, of this passage, something in 10, I give up. It's usually the mission. I don't know what you do, but I'm going to put that out there and ask you to think about it. There's a tension there. There is. Which do you give up? I I am less inclined to give up the Christian. I'm more inclined to give up the mission part of it, to be honest. That's me. I, I am not saying that everybody has to be about 
this deliberate aim in life in all the same ways, that we are all different people with different giftings and different callings. What I'm saying is that for who you are and for how God's made you, do you find this tension curtailing what God would mean for you to be? Going silent, going into stealth mode, not a wolf in sheep's clothing, but a sheep in other clothing. I think we have to wrestle with that and expect it and know that it's coming. And in fact, Paul puts this in here because he wants to help us face it and stand up under it and not turn away from it. That's most of what the second point is about, but there's one little piece that we need to grab hold of here that I skipped over on purpose. Expecting persecutions, knowing that they're coming, that can help us to be to be alerted to it, but also to realize that we stand into the persecution with a God who, just like for Paul, rescues us from all of it. Did you notice that at the end of verse 11? Yet from them all the Lord rescued me. The Lord rescued Paul from all his persecutions that he endured. And he will rescue us all from all of the persecutions we face, too. He will, as long as we define rescue properly. As long as we define it like Paul means it. How does Paul mean it? Well, look ahead at chapter 4, verse 18. We'll come to this eventually. But glance ahead because it's pretty important that we understand this now, what he means. Here's what Paul means when talking about being rescued. Chapter 4, verse 18, he is again confident that God will rescue him. Remember, Paul's in prison facing the axe. And I'm confident that the Lord will again rescue me from every evil deed and take me safely into his heavenly kingdom. I'm going to be rescued from every evil deed to heaven. Rescued to heaven. How's he going to get there? Satan, through evil men and imposters, aims to attack and destroy not just your body, but your soul. See, we we often view the persecution, we see the persecution, we see it coming, and we recognize, I understand, i got some idea what persecution is going to look like. People are going to insult me, they're going to mock me, they're going to reject me, they're going to ostracize me, they're going to hurl insults my way, they're going to not give me business, they're going to cut me out of that social circle, I'm going to be set apart, I'm going to be embarrassed, I'm going to be ashamed, maybe even rocks are going to hit me and I'm going to be left for dead. That's what's going to happen Ah, that's the threat. And Paul says, that's not the threat at all. The threat at all is what that might bring to you. The threat. Satan's trying to use all of that to actually destroy you. To destroy your soul. To scare you with rocks and sickness and poverty and snickers and jeers and embarrassment. Anything he can use. Anything he can use. Satan, like a lion, stalks you attempting to either scare you or lure you to pull you away from Christ. 
And Paul says, thank God that the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and safely take me to heaven. I'm going to have to die to get there, but thank goodness the Lord's going to rescue me and get me there. Sometimes he'll keep you from the rocks. Sometimes he'll keep you through the rocks. But he promises that he'll be present and he'll carry you home. The persecution, part of us reckoning with this persecution is to know that it's coming. And part of it is to know that we're there with Christ who will rescue us from the real danger. That I would leave him. He says, no you won't. Because I'm going to hold on. You're going to let go. I'm going to hold on. This helps us to reckon him as a rescuing God and always present. But there's more help that he gives us in the second half of the passage. So first, the Christian life is a principled life of godliness and persecution. Now the second point. So consider the evidence and press on. Consider the evidence and press on. Verse 14, we come to what is really the central thrust of this, of this whole passage. It's the only command in this very long paragraph. He doesn't want us to just know these truths. He, he wants us to press on to continue. Timothy, you... Now, there are evil people and imposters that are going to go from bad to worse. That's their trajectory. But you, Timothy, Christian, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed. You are Christian, living this principled godly life with persecution along with me. That's who you are. Continue in it. Press on. And notice, he's got this, this linkage here. There's, there's an important theological point here about the connection of being and doing. See, Paul is real clear with Timothy about who he is, about the being piece of this. Timothy is, put in whatever word you want here, well-taught, knowledgeable, fully convinced. He's a a rock-solid, genuine, true Christian, for sure. There's no doubt about that. He knows this and has firmly believed it, it says. And then Paul builds this whole paragraph to command him to continue in what he firmly believes. Both these things together. I know who you are, and so I'm going to command you to do something in light of who you are. Being and doing, put right together. This is how the wise God deals with his people. This is how God acts to preserve his people. Is how he keeps us. We heard read a, a psalm today that the main emphasis in that psalm is about God is the one who keeps us. He keeps us. He keeps us. This is how, in part, he keeps us by commanding us in the direction we need to go. Press on. Go that way. And but then helping us, as he's going to do here, but then helping us go that way, and he knows that my people, with my spirit in them, will hear my voice, and they will follow me, and therefore they will get to where they need to go, because I got him there. So he's calling us to persevere. And actually, he's the one who's preserving us with these commands. So there's the command. Continue in the life of godliness that you've learned and embraced. And here's how he wants to help us. He points us at people, scripture, 
and a great hope. These three things show up next. People, Scripture, and a great hope. End of verse 14, the people appear first. This is what you learned, firmly believed, continuing it, and he says then, knowing from whom you learned it. Me. From me. You know me from whom you learned it. Surely that's why he was just talking about all of his life and reminding him all that and kind of pointing. Remember me? Remember what I'm like? Remember what you saw? Remember all those miles and all those, those months and years? You know me. A shared life with Paul. Timothy didn't learn this in a classroom from a book. He learned it with him. Really important. This is all best learned and most compelling when it is taught in a life-modeling context. Because the one learning gets to see what it looks like when the rubber meets the road. There's the truth. There's the life that you're talking about. It's not just a theory. It actually does work. It actually does produce a different life. I watched you be poked and crossed, to be frustrated and beaten and opposed, and what I saw come out of you was faith, steadfastness, and patient love. It was real. It can be. This is so very different. It's the difference between, I mean, you know this. Isn't it different to read? God is enough. You can read those words. God is enough. There's some doctrine. Okay? But then when you see someone stoned and say in painful faith, God is enough, and get up and walk back into the city, that's different. Or when you hear someone share their concerns with you about a frightening accident. Or you're talking with someone about a a deadly diagnosis of some sort. Or the, the fear of a wayward child. Some sort of difficulty in life. A, a trusted relationship that's gone wrong. Someone who has, has abandoned or who has rejected you and, and you had laid everything at their feet. A spouse that's turned away from you. you. You hear somebody share something like that carefully through tears and then don't hear bitterness and anger. But hear then. But my hope is in the Lord. God is enough. That's totally different. That's totally different. The sort of human relationship teaching is, is a powerful evidence of the truth of the gospel, and it's a powerful way that God actually shapes his people and grows us up. Timothy got that from Paul by, by walking the roads of modern-day Turkey with him and by, by ministering with him and by sleeping in the same tent with him and going into the same buildings with him. He got it by being around him. It was a modeled life. You know me from whom you have learned it. But in fact, that word whom there is plural. 
may have a footnote that points that out. Because Paul doesn't just mean himself. And when in the next verse, verse 15, he brings up how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings. From childhood, that should make something else pop into our minds. Remember what Paul mentioned in chapter 1 of this book? Timothy's childhood. From whom else did Timothy learn? How was Timothy acquainted from childhood with the scriptures? Who taught him? Chapter 1, his mom and his grandmother. You know those from whom you learned it. From me, and, and, you're, and you're growing up in your adult years, but from your childhood, you know your mother, and you know your grandmother, and you saw them walk the walk, as well as talk the talk. You know your parents. All of us who are parents can take this to heart and say, like, there's something here. There's a powerful model. There are tracks laid down by parents and kids' lives. But in particular, I think that those of us who are what I might call single-in-the-faith mothers should read this and say, like, man, there is something really interesting here for me, for you. Timothy's home situation, he had believing mother and believing grandmother and non-believing father. And some of us are in that very same spot. Maybe you're, a, maybe you're a believing mother, and you sit there and you say, I, my husband's a, he may be a great guy, he may be good in many different ways, but one of the ways that he leaves something to be desired there is he doesn't know Jesus. Or maybe your husband does know Jesus, but isn't actually walking with him in the way that he should be. So you're, you're kind of a single-in-the-faith mom, and you're worried. I, I know that... Men have a particular influence on their homes, and I'm, I'm, I'm here by myself. What do I do about this? Paul thinks that he can point Timothy back to his mother, and that'll help Timothy. Because it's true. Paul thinks that he can point Timothy back to his grandmother, and that'll help Timothy. Because it's true. So you're a mother, or you're a grandmother, or, or a parent of any sort. You, you are one of those people that plays a huge role in the shaping of a Christian to be able to, to empower that Christian to resist the persecution and the temptation and the draw and the attack. I empower this person, maybe this young one in my home, I do a work in this one's life by walking this walk in front of him or her so that she sees and knows the one. Not just the information, but knows the person and sees me bear up under the difficulties and other challenges, sees me endure the persecutions, sees me deal with the shortages and the, and the challenges and the troubles. Whatever you face, those little eyes are watching you, and they'll learn. Not just the message, they'll learn your life. Paul means for Timothy to continue on, to press on the faith, and the first way that he and God means to help him is by saying, Look at the people, your parents and your teachers, and look at their lives. This is important. In our, in our church, we, we know this is important. We, in various ways, try to talk about this and try to provide platforms in which this could bloom, blossom. Because we want to say to all of us, What's going on right now, 
one guy talking, a bunch of people listening, is not enough. It's the start, not the finish. We, we want to say, and so we, we actually believe, that this, this piece of this passage and this piece of the Christian life is, is very important, that there be people connected to people within the body. So we provide platforms in which that could happen. We, we, we can't do, we don't do exactly what Timothy did, what, what Paul did. He, he selected Timothy and then you know, walked around with him for years. We can't do that quite. That's unique. But what we can do and what we do do and what I want to encourage you to pursue is we provide platforms in which people can be around one another and maybe then around one another recognizing I need that. I want to be a part of that. I want to be in some way connected enough to where my life is known and I know other people's lives. I can deal with them at a level of not just truth and knowledge and information, but actually how that's being lived out and how it's being threatened and how it's being encouraged. To deal with people on that level. We provide platforms in which we can get people around one another, like discipleship groups and community groups and a women's retreat and a meal after church today. Just platforms. Which you cannot come to or come to and not engage with or can come to and say, me needing this, I want to see who I connect with and who I might maybe start to talk with and maybe invite out for coffee and see if something might resonate and grow. This community of witnesses is, is a very important piece and a very important piece of what empowers us to press on in the face of hardship. But that's not the only thing he points to. He also points at Scripture. God's Word. Verse 14. So you know from whom you learned it. Verse 15, actually the same root word is used here. How you have known the sacred writings. The book. Another way to say sacred would be the, the divine writings. The book from God. The Bible and nothing else. Nothing else is scripture. And this is what Timothy knew, and God wants him. Paul's encouraging him. You know the scriptures. Take up the scriptures. So don't just look at the people. Look at the word. This also is a critical, critical element in, in empowering you to press on. Let what's here shape your, your horizon, shape your values, shape your pursuits, Got a more to, I'm going to have more to say about that next week when I talk about verses 16 and 17, so I'm going to leave it there. But what's important for us this morning is to see in particular what's in the Bible and why we need it. Thirdly, he points him to the hope of the Scriptures. Notice something very interesting in verse 15. He tells us both what the sacred scriptures are about and how you can know if you're reading the sacred scriptures and not just some guy's ideas. 
The Bible, the scripture, the point of it is to make you wise. The sacred writings which are able to make you wise, not just wise in a general way, but wise for salvation. Salvation in a particular way. Salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. The words that are from God make us wise not by telling us what we are to do, although there's plenty in here. That's not the point, though. The main point is to tell us what has been done. And the wise person then pursues what God has done in Christ, salvation that is by faith in Christ Jesus. We need this book. We need people's lives to see this lived out, but we need this book to know what is true. And in particular, to know the whole pinnacle of all of God's vast across eternity working, the pinnacle of it, that you would know union with Christ. That you would be found in Christ Jesus by faith. That's what the whole thing is moving towards. That's what must be seen and taken in, tasted, treasured. Because if it doesn't, there will be no counterpull against the persecution. You'll be left saying, I take this trouble for what? For nothing. Well, other people are taking it. I, I see they're, they're taking it, but for nothing. The Bible's got a whole lot of rules about what I'm supposed to do for nothing. No, it's... This is the resting point. The only reason, the only reason worth enduring the persecution that will come our way is that God has wrought for you in Christ a union with the Almighty. That is what gives you life forever. Do you have any idea how long forever is? We will face trouble in a temporary, short, minor way. But how great of a gain is it, ask yourself, how great of a gain is it to have Jesus forever? And if the answer is, then you're gone. The persecution will sweep you away. What we need at the bottom, at the end, finally, is not just people around us to link arms with us and hold us. Yes. Not just truth. What we need is a vision of the glory of the Almighty God 
come to you, to commune with you, to love you and do you good and bring you into the very experience of his nature forever and ever and ever and ever. That is the hope. That's what the scriptures deliver to you. That's what Jesus won for you. That's what God means to bless you and pour out on you and hold up in front of you and invite you to and say, here. And it's what Satan wants to keep you from. Brothers and sisters, to be in Jesus by faith is life. God has won it for you, and God will rescue you to it. You are a real Christian. You have this being, but the command then still comes to you. Chase it hard. Press on. Continue. And do so with people over the words with your eyes on heaven. That's how God carries us through the troubling waters into his heavenly kingdom of glory. All I can do here at this point is say, behold your God and and pray that he shows himself to us as a people together over his word. This is where life is. Meant for us, given by God. He is the treasure. He is the treasure. Everything else is rubbish compared to him. Let me pray now that God would press that into our hearts and cause us to believe that and want him. Let me pray. Father, I find myself here at the end just kind of saying, please do that. Because we can't. We are prone to wander, Lord, we know it. Prone to leave the one we love. We do love you indeed. But we are prone to wander. So will you please keep us? Will you build in us persevering faith? Will you knit us together as a people and will you make the scriptures clear to us but will you show us Christ please and build in us persevering faith. Lord, we know that you, you told us that in this world we would have trouble but you have overcome the world. Help us to bank on that and run to you. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.